0: Welcome to Faith of Our Fathers. Today we feature John Stott, whether in the West or in the Third World. A hallmark of Stott's ministry has been expository preaching that addresses not only the hearts, but also the minds of contemporary men and women. In 2011, the evangelical world lost one of its greatest spokesmen. And I have lost one of my closest friends and advisors, said Billy Graham. Today, John Stott presents a study on John chapter 1, verse 14. We began with Matthew, who portrays Jesus as the Christ of Scripture, the fulfillment of centuries of Old Testament expectation. We continued with Mark, who portrays Jesus as the suffering servant, so that the cross was at the very center of his life and will be at the center of our lives if we are true followers of his. Last Sunday we studied Luke, who portrays Jesus as the Savior of the world, reaching out in saving mercy to all humankind tonight we studied john who portrays jesus as the eternal word made flesh who came to share our life in order that we might share his have you ever considered that each of the four evangelists begins his story at a different point? Mark begins his gospel with the public ministry of Jesus, heralded by John the Baptist, the forerunner. Matthew and Luke go back beyond the public ministry to the conception and birth of Jesus in fulfillment of Old Testament prediction. But John goes back much, much further still. John doesn't begin with the conception and the birth of Jesus. He believes in the eternal pre-existence of Jesus. He begins with the Word. The Word who later became flesh in Jesus, who was with God, was God, and was the agent of for the creation of the universe. Now, John never loses sight of this eternal perspective of Jesus Christ. Either he presents Jesus, or Jesus in his gospel presents himself as he who descended from heaven, he who came from above, the bread that came down from heaven, he whom the Father sent into the world, I say again, John never forgets that eternal perspective. And how did he come down from heaven? Well, I want to ask you to open your Bible, if you will, at the lesson that was read by Sue Radford just now. We turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 1, in the New Testament section of your Bible, page 87. And I want to take as my text that well-known and great Affirmation in verse 14, John 1, 14. <clears throat> and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, full of grace and truth, and we have beheld his glory. Glance on to verse 16, and from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. Now the Word had visited planet Earth many, many, many times before the Incarnation. Indeed, He was in the world, continuously in the world, the world that He had made. He was in the world supervising and sustaining it and giving life and light to everything and everybody because, as John says here in verse 9, he is the true light, coming continuously into the world and giving light to everybody. Don't imagine that Christmas Day was his first visit to planet Earth. He'd made it. He'd never left the world that he had made. But now he became flesh. Now it was not a visitation, It was an incarnation. Now, it was not an incognito coming. It was a becoming human flesh. It's a pity, in a way, that we're so familiar with that phrase that it makes no impact on us. We hear it again, and we scarcely raise an eyebrow in any surprise. Yet I do not hesitate to say the words are staggering in their implications, and they are utterly unparalleled in all the history and the philosophy of religion. Because flesh means real, physical, and psychological humanness, with all the frailty and the fragility and the limitations that humanness implies God who made human beings became one himself the creator assumed the weakness of his own creature he who is spirit became flesh he who is eternal entered time the all-powerful made himself vulnerable to pain, the all-holy to temptation, and the immortal to death. The Word became flesh, frail, human flesh, and all that is necessary for humanness, Jesus Christ, the Word of God, assumed. So this is the central affirmation of the Gospel of John that the Word became flesh and as a human being dwelt among us, pitched his tent among us, as the Greek verb could be translated, and really the rest of his Gospel is an outworking of that incredible statement. And he begins the outworking immediately in our text. Because the Word became flesh and pitched his tent among us. What are the results of that, the consequences? First, we beheld his glory. And second, we received his grace. So that you see, John is speaking as a representative of the Christian community. He is implying that we have responded to what he has said in verses 12 and 13, that we have believed on the name of Jesus Christ, we have in consequence been born not of blood, nor of the will of man, nor of the will of the flesh, but we born of God, been born of God. And having experienced this new birth through belief in Jesus, what is our relationship to the Word made flesh? First, we have seen something in him. And second, we have received something from him, and what we have seen in him is glory. And what we have received from him is grace. Will you think about that with me as we penetrate a bit more deeply into the wonders of the Gospel of John? First, we have seen his glory. Now, God, of course, is invisible. In his innermost being, nobody's ever seen God. John says it in verse 18, if you glance on in the chapter, nobody has ever seen God. God is invisible, but the only begotten who is in the bosom of the Father, he has made him known. So that Jesus was able to say in his public ministry, he who has seen me has seen the Father because the invisible God made himself visible in the Word made flesh. But you may well ask, how have we seen his glory? And for that I want to ask you to turn over a page to chapter 2 of the Gospel of John and verse 11. It's the conclusion of the miracle of the turning water into wine. And when he turned the water into wine, John comments, verse 11, that this, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested His glory." And his disciples believed in him. So one of the major ways in which he manifested his glory, so that we have seen His glory, is in his miracles. And we need to remember that the miracles of Jesus were not just powers exhibiting divine strength. They were not just wonders evoking amazement and astonishment. The third word that is used of them is signs. They were significant. They had theological significance. They displayed the glory of Jesus. Now, John tells us at the end of the gospel that he only records a selection of the signs of Jesus. He says in chapter 20, verse 31, many other signs did Jesus that are not recorded in this book. He did many, many signs. But John has recorded a selection of them in order that we may believe in Jesus. Let me run through some of them very quickly. Jesus changed water into wine and he cleansed the temple in Jerusalem as a sign of the new order that he was inaugurating in place of obsolete Judaism. Then Jesus healed a nobleman's son, and healed a man who had been sick 38 years at the pool of Bethesda as a sign of his authority to bestow life upon human beings. Then he fed 5,000 people with loaves and fishes as a sign that he was the bread of life who could satisfy the hunger of human hearts. Then he walked on the stormy waters of the lake as a sign that the powers of nature and the powers of evil symbolized in the storm were under his control and subject to him. Then he gave sight to a man born blind as a sign that he was the light of the world and that if people followed him they would not walk in darkness but have the light of life. And then he raised Lazarus from the dead, resuscitated him after he'd been dead four days as a sign that he was the resurrection and the life so that he who lives will not die and he who dies will live. Now those you might call the signs of the power of Jesus. All of them are signs of power. Divine power over nature and so on, through which he manifested his glory. But listen carefully. The signs of Jesus in which his glory were displayed were not only signs of power, they were also signs of weakness. Do not imagine that the glory of Jesus is a synonym for power and pageantry. But the greatest display of the glory of Jesus was in servitude, in suffering, and in death. One of the great manifestations of his glory was in the upper room on his last night on earth, when during supper he got up from where he was reclining. He laid aside his outer garment. He put on him the apron, the towel of a common slave. He poured water into a basin. He got on his hands and knees and washed the apostles' feet like a slave. Their Lord became their servant. He displayed his glory in humility and servitude. But the greatest of all the displays of the glory of Jesus was on the cross. Jesus, according to the Gospel of John, referred to his death on the cross as his glorification. His crucifixion was his glorification. He said, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, a grain of wheat Unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it multiplies. So the glorification, he was referring to his death. The glory of Jesus is the splendor, not just of his power, but of his humble, serving, self-sacrificial, sin-bearing love. We have beheld his glory. But it's a great mistake to imagine that being a Christian is only beholding something. It's more than that. It's receiving something. Being a Christian is not just seeing something in Jesus that you've never seen before. It's also receiving something from Jesus that you have never possessed before. But Jesus didn't only come to show his glory, he came to bestow his grace. In theological terms, he came not only for the purposes of revelation, but for the purposes of redemption. And what is the gift of his grace? You remember that verse 16 we've received of his fullness, we have all received. Grace after grace after grace. What is this grace that we receive from Jesus? Well, to Nicodemus, he called it a new birth. To the Samaritan woman, he called it the water of life. To others, he spoke of satisfying their hunger and dispelling their darkness with his marvelous light. But essentially, what he gives to us is not a gift, but himself, because he says, I am the bread of life, I am the light of the world, I am the resurrection and the life and the way, the truth and the life, and it isn't a gift outside Jesus we need to receive, it's Jesus himself. So that in his first letter, John says, he who has the Son has life. You cannot have life without having the Son in whom the life is to be found. He gives us himself indeed in shocking terms. He says that unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood and absorb him into yourself, you have no life in you. It's when you receive Christ that you receive life. But even that isn't the end. There's more still to come. For in this world, we only begin to feed upon Christ and to receive his life. And in the next world, his life is going to be perfected in us. Because the Jesus who came 2,000 years ago to us is going one day to come again for us. And he who came down from heaven is going to take us up to himself. His prayer to the Father will be answered when he said, you remember this phrase? I came from my Father and have come into the world. And now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. And when he goes to the Father, he takes us with him. And he says, I will take you to myself. His prayer to the Father is that they may be where I am, that they may see my glory and share in the fullness of my life and love. This may, be, may have seemed a bit complicated, but I'm very anxious we should lay hold of this next point. This is, as I understand it, the essence of John's gospel. We don't grasp the essence of John's gospel unless we see the complementary movements of his mission. As he came down to us and raises us up to him. I quote it again. I came from the Father and have come into the world and I'm leaving the world and going to the Father and taking us with him. So he came down from heaven to earth in order to raise us from earth to heaven. The divine word shared our human life that human beings might share his divine life. Glory became flesh in order that flesh might partake of glory. That's the message of John. And John seems constantly to marvel at this condescension of the word who became flesh, the heights from which he came to us and the heights to which he raises us. Well, I want to permit myself a few more minutes in which to reflect with you on the fourfold portrait that we have been considering and how wonderfully complementary they are, the one to the other. We've tried to grasp the distinctive of each of the four evangelists. And I want to share with you a little bit uh, hesitantly one way in which I think you might find it easy to remember the four distinctives. Before I give uh, this way to you, I have to say that it is a little bit fanciful. It's fanciful to a little degree, I confess that before I start. And I'm not claiming that the evangelists actually thought like this, but what I am claiming is it's a helpful device if you have as fallible a memory as mine. It concerns the four dimensions of the saving purpose of God length, depth, breadth, and height. In Matthew, it's length. For he depicts the Christ of Scripture who looks back over long, long centuries of prophetic expectation which he has fulfilled. In Mark, it's depth. For he looks down. He depicts Jesus as the suffering servant who looks down into the depths of humiliation and suffering into which he plunged. In Luke, it's breadth. For Luke depicts Jesus as the Savior of the world who looks round in mercy to the broad range of the human population. But in John, it's height. For he depicts Jesus as the Word made flesh who looks up to the heights from which he came and to the heights to which he raises us. No wonder Paul prayed in Ephesians 3 that we might comprehend with all the people of God the breadth, length, depth, and height of the love of God. And no wonder some of the early church fathers saw these four dimensions of the love of God symbolized in the cross of Christ, its upright pole reaching down into the earth and pointing up to heaven, while on the crossbar the arms of Jesus are stretched as if to invite and to welcome the whole wide world. I believe that one of our greatest needs today is to have a fuller, richer, clearer vision of Jesus Christ. I believe that most of our troubles in life, including our Christian troubles in the Christian life, are due to our paltry vision of Jesus. Borrowing a phrase of Jim Packer in the preface to his great book, Knowing God, he said, We are pygmy Christians because we have a pygmy God. And I want to say, We are pygmy Christians because we have a pygmy Christ. How can you expect to grow into maturity in Christ if you see him only as a man or only as a prophet or only as a clown or only as a superstar or only as a wonder drug or one of these other terribly inadequate images of Jesus? If only we could see him as the evangelists saw him. If we could but grasp the length of history that he controls, and the breadth of the world population that he embraces, and the depth of suffering that he plumbed, and the heights of glory from which he came and to which he raises us. If we grasp the length, breadth, depth, height of the love of God in Christ, I think we would give to Jesus Christ the honor that is his due. Worship, faith, obedience would be drawn out from us and we'd fall on our faces before him saying with Thomas, my Lord and my God. And friends, we would count it a simply enormous privilege to be allowed to spend our whole lives in his service let us pray we're going to spend a few moments in silence as we bow down in heart and mind before Jesus Christ the Word made flesh whose glory We have seen whose grace we may receive, many of us have received. Have we come to him? Have we ever given him the glory that is due to his name? Have we fallen prostrate before him in worship? Let's do it now. In silence. Lord Jesus, our words are hopelessly inadequate to express the devotion of our hearts. We love you, we worship you, we bring to you the homage of our lives we desire to receive of your fullness grace upon grace upon grace to be transformed into your image not only to behold your glory but to reflect it and to spend our lives in your service hear us, receive us forgive us, empower us send us into the world as your ambassadors for the glory of your great and worthy name. Amen. You've been listening to John Stott. Listen to Faith of Our Fathers each Saturday and Sunday to hear more great 20th century preachers.